0: Sirius XM Radio is better with Bogle Wines. 70s on 7, 80s on 8, better with Bogle. Alt Nation, Hip Hop Nation, Hair Nation, better with Bogle. Madison, Howard, Andy Cohen, better, better, better. Y2 Country, Prime Country, Carrie's Country, yep, all better. The Beatles Channel is better, and getting better all the time. Everything on Sirius is better with Bogle. Award-winning, family-owned wines ranked as some of the finest available for around 10 bucks. As long as you're not driving, it's better with Bogle. Bogle Family Vineyards, Clarksburg, California. Please drink responsibly.
1: welcome to true crime garage wherever you are whatever you are doing thanks for listening i'm your host nick and with me as always is a man that knows that life's the same moving in stereo except for the shoes he is the captain
0: and we'll all be okay as long as those shoes aren't velcro it's good to be seen and it's good to see you thanks for listening thanks for telling a friend
1: This week, we are very proud to be featuring Focal Banger by The Alchemist. Garage grade, four out of five bottle caps. Focal Banger is an American India Pale Ale, ABV, 7%. At The Alchemist, they show some real love for IPAs, and they brew focused on freshness. So you know you'll be drinking a fresh, clean, and delicious beer. Tall cans in the air, friends. And this tasty treat was brought to us by, first up, a big thank you to friend of the show, Rob P. out in Woodbury, Vermont. And a big shout to Krista up in North
0: Vancouver, British Columbia.
1: And here's the cheers to Megan in Mills, Massachusetts.
0: And a big shout to Scotty G. in Niagara Falls.
1: Next, we have Francesca and her awesome mother, Pam, that is in the parts that are unknown. And last but not least, we have Jordan W. and Lawrence, Kansas. Everyone we just mentioned went to TrueCrimeGarage.com and contributed to this week's beer fund. And for that, we thank you.
0: Do you know what the temperature is and parts unknown?
1: I have no idea. Good luck finding it on a map.
0: It's always 69. And that is enough of the business.
1: All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. A 17-year-old girl goes out with friends to a party on a Saturday night. Nearing what was believed to be the end of her night, she calls her parents. This is just a brief and simple call, saying she plans to be home soon. But something happened. Something went wrong, because she does not come home. The next day, in the morning hours, her body is found. On the side of a road about 30 miles away she was strangled for any town this would be a horrific crime that would strike fear into the residents hearts but for the akron ohio region in 1987 this murder caused extreme terror panic and outrage there are three strongly supported theories in this unsolved murder case each theory presenting its own level of disgust and outrage, but each also presenting a different terror and threat level. The first theory is someone close to the victim attacked and killed the girl. The second is maybe someone she only thought she knew or someone on the fringes of her social circles is responsible. And thirdly... And certainly the most terrorizing theory, she was the victim of an undetected serial killer. You see, there is evidence to suggest that this murder was not a one-off. This murder could be just one in a string of murders of women in the area. Four women were found murdered in Summit County in the final 18 weeks of 1987. All of those murders, to this day, are still unsolved. This is True Crime Garage, and this is the case of Barbara Blatnick and the 1987 Summit County Murders. Our featured case takes place in December of 1987. Barbara Ann Blatnick was a fairly typical 17-year-old girl. She lived in Garfield Heights, Ohio. This is on Band Drive with her mom, Teresa, her dad, John, and her 19-year-old sister, Donna. Barbie, as she was called, had feathered 1980s-style blonde hair and is described as cute and bubbly. Her father described her as a free spirit who loved people, maybe too much. She loved heavy metal music, makeup, dancing, babysitting, and hanging out with her friends, of which she had a lot. Barbie's sister Donna, whom True Crime Garage spoke with at length in our research for the show, describes her younger sister, frankly, as a girl who liked to party. She was known to drink, dabble in drugs, smoke, and basically live the party lifestyle. Now we said she loved loud, heavy metal music. Captain, one thing we have in common with Barbie and anyone who listens to our other show off the record knows this. One of her favorite bands was ACDC. A Barbie had a pack of girlfriends that was very tight and they all hung out with a bunch of neighborhood guys at a bike shop on Warner road called motorcycle specialties where they would go to party According to our sources, the bike shop owner liked pretty girls around and would supply booze and pot. Now, Barbie had a boyfriend. His name was Jerry, and the two were dating on and off for about a year. From what we understand, this wasn't a relationship that was likely to go down the traditional route of dating, marriage, and kids. Donna says her sister liked boys and was known to date around, never really being exclusive with anyone. Barbie had been in trouble a few times and transferred high schools in January, leaving Garfield Heights High School and switching to Erieview Catholic, where she was a junior. According to her family, although Barbie was a handful, she had no enemies, and on the contrary, Barbie had lots of friends and was known as a fun, scrappy, badass girl. Anyway, Barbie set out on the afternoon of December 19th, which was a Saturday, with some friends to go to a party. She dressed in jeans, a sweater, jewelry, and she had her comb, money, and cigs in her back pocket as usual. Newspaper reports at the time state that she left her home either around 4 p.m. or 6.30 p.m. Reports differ on this.
0: Do we know why there's such a gap in time?
1: We have one paper reporting 4 p.m. and one reporting 6.30 p.m. We don't know why there's a discrepancy in that time frame. But what we do know is that she left with friends and they went to a party on Turney Road, which was about a mile and a half away from Barbie's home. It's unclear whether this party was at someone's home or somewhere else. We don't know who hosted this gathering.
0: Well, and it's also hard sometimes to define what an actual quote unquote party is. Party could be eight people sitting around a house or a hundred people.
1: Or a couple of teenage kids in somebody's backyard or at a park. Right. Now, newspaper reports stated, and Donna confirmed this, that Barbie (laughs) called home sometime after 1030 p.m. This just to say that she would be home soon. Now, Barbie's sister, Donna, tells us that this was very unusual. Barbie did not usually check in. Typically, she would go out with friends and she would come home or she would crash at someone's house. It wasn't uncommon for her to stay out all night, sleeping at a friend's. It was uncommon for her to call home. Remember, this is 1987, so this would also require her to find a landline to make that call. Who took the call? Her parents answered that call.
0: So, but can we definitively say that it's her? I mean, because I know with my parents, if I would have called, especially like on a uh, on a school night or the weekend night and said, Hey, I'm going to, and, and it was a quick call. I might be able to confuse them by having a, a friend call.
1: I don't think anybody's disputing that it was Barbie on the phone, but despite that unusual call saying that she would be home, she didn't come home. Her parents went to bed and didn't worry the next morning. They assumed that she was at a friend's Barbie's mother and sister went out Christmas shopping. Little did Teresa and Donna know that while they were shopping, two cops showed up at their house. John Blatnick was asked to go to the morgue in Cuyahoga Falls. Barbie had been found dead. We have been able to shed a little more light on the events of the last night of Barbie's life. This thanks to Donna and also from the Justice for Barbara Blatnick website run by a local armchair detective who wants to help bring closure to the Blatnick family. Here's what we found. Barbie met up with her good friend Michelle that afternoon at a party at the bike shop on Warner road. This is in addition to the party on Turney road that Barbie told her parents she was going to, if in fact that was true.
0: All right. So she meets up with her friend, Michelle, right? They're going to go to the bike shop. That's where they normally hang out, have these little parties, little gatherings.
1: Yeah. So when Michelle meets up with Barbie it sounds like one of them is already at the bike shop on Warner Road All right, at so. this party. So the first time that Michelle sees Barbie, according to Michelle, is at this bike shop where they were known to hang out and party.
0: Okay, so then they're going to go to another party.
1: No, that's why I think things are a little confusing here. So we have the statement that Barbie tells her parents that she's going to a party on Turney road, right? Right. And then we have Michelle who's going to add some detail, fill in some blanks of the time that Barbie was gone that night. And she's saying that the first time that she sees Barbie is at this party at the bike shop on Warner road. So a different party. So if in fact there was even a party on Turney road, that Barbie was going to go to, she could have actually gone to that party and then went to the bike shop afterwards. I think this is part of the reason why we have some different things within the timeline regarding when she left the house that day.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, it's tricky too, because there are some people when you're friends with people, when you're younger, they, you know, you'd be hanging out at your buddy's house and they'd just be saying, well, oh, we're going to go to such and such house and we're going to go to somebody else's house. And it might be because they know the the parents know the parents better, but you never end up going there. Does does that make sense?
1: Well, the other thing, too, that we got to keep in mind is I don't know 100% when this uh, Barbara Blatnick website was created by the local armchair detective, Mm -hmm. but Michelle is supplying the armchair detective with this statement of the timeline for that night of, or what she knows of the timeline for that night. And this could be 20 years later. All right.
0: So we have a gathering at the bike shop. That's where Barbie runs into her friend, Michelle.
1: Michelle was Barbie's friend who had just had a baby and the two actually hadn't seen each other in a while. Now Michelle also had another girlfriend with her and they did eventually meet up with at least one other girl. Their names are Linda and Sheila. The four of them partied at the bike shop along with a bunch of other local teens. This bike shop had a basement and the owner, Jeff, was known to provide booze and marijuana to to attract teens to hang out there during the winter months when they couldn't party outdoors. The girls partied there for a while and then they left in Michelle's car to go to a pub that served minors. This is on East 71st Street. Barbie and her friends were known to hang out at pubs like this, where drinking rules weren't enforced and they were open late.
0: Right, and some people are probably listening right now going, what? Bike shop owners are supplying drugs for kids to hang out? Um, Bars serve underage people because that is cracked down on a lot more now, Mm -hmm. back in the 80s, even in the 90s there was plenty of bars that you could go to because they had no customers. So they're, they were fine with serving underage people.
1: Right. And they, I really feel like it was in the early two thousands, at least in this area, which we are somewhat close to her area, maybe hour and a half, two hour drive, let's say. Mm-hmm. But in our area, it wasn't until the early two thousands where they really cracked down on that. Everybody either themselves or knows somebody that, had a bar that they could go into and get a couple drinks and be 18 years old, let's say, or 19 years old. Yeah. Right. This is where things get a little tricky because now we know that they're at the pub. Okay. But at 10 30, when that call goes from Barbie to her parents, it's not known where that call was placed. So that gets to be a bit of a difficult thing. It could have been as something as simple as calling from a payphone at that pub. But we don't have anybody else to tell us that Barbie, that they were present when she made that call. So anyway, we have the girls. They sat at a table in the pub chatting and drinking. They say that nothing seemed amiss. According to Michelle, anyway, there was no one who seemed strange or threatening at the pub.
0: All right. So we know that this call happened around 1030. But based on Michelle's records, we don't know what time she left the bike shop what time they got to the pub. So we don't know if this call came from the bike shop or while they're at the pub or after the pub.
1: It would seem that it, well, we do know what time they left the the pub. So it would seem that this call would have had to have taken place. If we are going off of Michelle's events mm-hmm. of that night, that the call would have had to take place at the, either the pub or at the bike shop. Right. Because Michelle goes on to say that the girls, all of them, including Barbie, stayed at the pub until closing time, which was 3.15 a.m. At that time, Michelle drove Barbie to the intersection of Warner Road and Grand Division Avenue. This is right near the bike shop. So if you look at the area on a map, you can see that it's a residential neighborhood, but Warner Road has commercial businesses like convenience stores, automotive repair shops, and so on. Barbie says that she was going to Jerry's house. Remember, Jerry is the boyfriend mm-hmm. or the guy that she was seeing at the time. Jerry, Jerry, Dingo Berry. So this is fairly close to the place where Michelle drops Barbie off. He lived with his older brother, Bob, and his parents in a house behind the AC Delco auto parts store, which was another place where the kids would meet up to party in the yard and the parking lot outside. This mostly in the summertime when it was warmer outside. Right. Michelle and the other friend dropped Barbie off there and then drove off and never saw or heard from her again. The next morning, Sunday, December 20th, around ten twenty AM, Barbara's nude and bruised body was found in a wooded area just off O'Neill Road near the Blossom Music Center in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. This is about 30 miles away from where Barbara was last seen.
0: Yeah, it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere, if if I remember correctly.
1: Yeah, Cuyahoga Falls is a totally different area of Ohio and is a suburb of Akron, whereas Barbara lived in Garfield Heights near Cleveland. Now, initial reports confused things because they stated that Barbie was found on the grounds of the Blossom Music Center. This is an outdoor concert venue, the kind of place where like 15,000 people can watch a concert. Yeah. It's a pretty popular, it's popular in that area anyway.
0: I saw Radiohead there.
1: Ooh, fantastic. Uh, Barbie and her friends had been there in the past to see concerts, but she was nowhere near it on the night in question. It turns out that she wasn't found on the grounds of Blossom. Detectives corrected this on December 22nd. She was found near a wooded area on the side of a nearby access road that would not have been heavily trafficked on a Sunday morning in December. We don't know whether Blossom would have been open in December, although it seems unlikely, unless they had some kind of Christmas holiday show. Some of these places have holiday light displays, and we do know that Blossom in modern times has a Halloween Fright Fest in
0: October. Yeah, but a lot of these concerts, like we had Jermaine Amphitheater here, which is similar to Blossom. But a lot of those concerts, don't you remember them like closing down around midnight? Like there weren't, it wasn't like a bar show where you'd stay there till two o'clock in the morning.
1: I remember some of them closing at 11 p.m. because of noise ordinances. I'm assuming that it was not open that night and probably not open during. The cold weeks of early winter. We have little details of how and by whom Barbie was spotted. Newspaper reports stated that it was an employee of KST Oil and Gas who spotted Barbie's body as he drove along the road. The Akron Beacon Journal and other papers reported that she was found about 10 feet north of O'Neill Road. O'Neill Road has a strange orientation in that it runs north and south, then curves sharply and runs east to west, Mm -hmm. and then turns again into north and south. Barbara was found on the northern side of the east-west portion, which falls between two other more unused roads. O'Neill Road runs parallel to another road that abuts the Cuyahoga Valley National Recreation Area. As for the person who found her, it doesn't seem bizarre that an oil and gas company worker would be out and about on that desolate stretch of road if he was on duty, perhaps even working nearby. What's horrifying is that Barbie's sister, Donna, tells us that when this person found Barbie, who had been dumped naked on the roadside like a piece of garbage she was still alive, barely, but alive. And sadly, that was not the case for long.
0: I couldn't even imagine being at work and coming across somebody that is losing their life.
1: Yeah, well, we do have some of this autopsy information because it was released to the newspapers at the time. So the Summit County Coroner, this is William A. Cox, performed the autopsy promptly after she was found. A preliminary report was released on Monday. The Beacon Journal quoted Cox's statement in some broadcast interviews, and what he said was very interesting. He said that Barbie was killed in an unidentified place, and her body was taken to where it was found just a couple of hours before it was discovered. So now we have to question, how could he come to this conclusion? One thought I had is possibly since she was still breathing when found, he may have been estimating that she would not have survived long outside in the cold after such a brutal attack. Mm -hmm. Or we have this too, this possibility. Someone, perhaps even the same oil and gas worker or someone else the police talked to had drove by this area. On O'Neill Road, just a couple of hours before. Right. And he or she was certain that Barbie was not there at that time.
0: Well, and like you said, this worker could have been working in the area, so he could have been paying attention and said, well, when I entered my route, I didn't see anybody there.
1: Whatever the case may be, the coroner will stick with this timeline and stick to that statement. As he stated the coroner didn't believe that the O'Neill Road site was the murder scene. Whether he could have concluded this because of lack of blood, signs of a struggle, drag marks, or disturbed foliage, we don't know. And we have no idea if Barbie was carried or dragged to the dump site or just dumped out of a vehicle. Now, Coroner Cox also stated that Barbie was intoxicated when she died. This does go along with what we hear from Michelle, her friend. He did not indicate a time of death, but we know that she was still alive when found at 1020. As for when the attack occurred, we can narrow that down ourselves. If we assume her friend, Michelle is accurate about the timeline she provided, mm-hmm. then Barbie was still alive and well at around three thirty AM. When the girls were dropped off near Jerry's house. And she was found at 10.20 a.m. So sometime between the hours of 3.30 a.m. and 10.20 a.m., someone raped and strangled Barbie. And they beat her so badly that her neck had to be covered by a scarf at her funeral service to disguise the bruising. Barbara was found wearing only her contact lenses and a class ring that displayed her school and her first name inside of it. Her clothes and other jewelry that she was wearing that night have never been found. Now, this is a little-known fact that was never released to the papers, but we learned this from Donna from Barbie's sister. It was the 80s, and Barbie was wearing at least four or five earrings and wearing uh, you know, tons of stacked bracelets, mm-hmm. at least two necklaces, and possibly other jewelry that night.
0: Kind of like the Ma- Madonna style
1: yeah, or, uh, Mr. T. Yeah. <laughs> uh, none of these were, were found at the scene, the class ring. W- we have to wonder, did the killer, if he took and removed all these other items, mm-hmm. why not take the class ring? was, it something as simple as he didn't see it or was it too hard to get off? He couldn't take it off of her finger.
0: But you said the the earrings were in, or they were taken.
1: No earrings. The only thing she had on her was her contact lenses and class classroom. ring.
0: Yeah, I I would assume it was something. That just didn't see it, or maybe he couldn't
1: get it off. Yeah, it, he would have had no way of knowing that her name was inside of this ring.
0: Well, which is actually that's po- if you're assuming that the person that attacked her didn't know who she was.
1: No, I mean the the her name was inside of the ring. So you would have to remove the ring to see her name. Right, right. There. So if the ring never came off, he would not have known that. And we can't we can't really go down the road too much of whether he wanted her to remain unidentified for a period of time or if he cared at all. Uh but right. regarding this ring, I want to point that out because this is actually how they were able to identify her. So they have her school class ring, and then they have her name inside of it. That's what led them to realize that we have Barbara Blatnick that we found on the side of the road here. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. while your subscription is active.
0: Alright, we're back. Cheers, mates. Everybody keeps asking us where they can find old episodes. Download the Stitcher app. They're free on the Stitcher app. Also, check out our show on Stitcher Premium called Off the Record.
1: Let's get into this investigation some more. So Barbie's case was assigned to the Cuyahoga Falls PD. She was found in Summit County, not her native Cuyahoga County. Keep in mind, Barbie had no ties to Cuyahoga Falls that police could find. And no one could think of a reason why she would be in that area. All anyone knew was that Barbie and her friends were very familiar with the Blossom Music Center. So Barbie's case was investigated based on the jurisdiction of the body, not the jurisdiction where she had attended a party and been out and about just hours before her death. This is standard procedure. But if the murder took place in or near Garfield Heights by a person or persons who knew her, perhaps this is why her case remains unsolved. And perhaps dumping her in Summit County may have been quite deliberate. After the autopsy, Coroner Cox made some statements to the media that are interesting. Barbie was strangled to death. We don't know whether manual or with an implement. And she was raped. What's intriguing here, and these are some uncomfortable details to cover in the case, but they're important to the case. So bear with me here for a minute. The main thing that's intriguing about what Cox went out of his way to clarify regarding Barbara being raped, he says, quote, by more than one person, end quote. This statement was made to the media on Tuesday, December 22nd. So only two days after Barbie was found dead. The question becomes, how could the coroner know this detail? This is 1987 and very, very early in the DNA testing era. And what is the likelihood that a small town in Ohio had access to the highest level of DNA testing available at the time or could complete that testing within just 48 hours? My guess is slim to none. One thing that is possible is that perhaps the coroner found two different samples of semen on different parts of Barbie's body and he did blood type testing, which showed two different types. What seems more likely is that Cox may have just jumped to this conclusion based on what he determined in the autopsy, that Barbie had been raped repeatedly. He said, quote, it was repetitious. I believe that we are dealing with more than one person. Whether or not this is correct is really anyone's guess. In any event, Coroner Cox said that Barbie was raped by more than one perpetrator. It's interesting to hear Cox describe the state of DNA testing back in late 1987. The following appeared in a Beacon Journal article about Barbie's case on December 23rd, 1987, where it says, quote, sperm taken from the girl's body has been sent to a New York firm for analysis of genetic content because molecular genetic material, DNA, is different for everyone except identical twins. A print of this material would be equivalent to a fingerprint for positive identification, Cox said. The question is, is there enough to cultivate? If anything ever came of this DNA analysis, police have not revealed that. An article in the Beacon Journal in February of 1988 stated that although Coroner Cox used the DNA test on Barbie, He said nothing had been produced to help identify a suspect.
0: On, you wonder, did they have enough to identify a suspect?
1: Right. And that's the question that he first posed when they were going to send it off for analysis. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know if that means they didn't get a match to anyone or whether they weren't able to extract a profile at all, as you're saying. Mm Mm-hmm. For what it's worth, we did ask the sergeant currently in charge of the Cuyahoga Falls detective unit whether there was any testable DNA in Barbie's case. And he told us that, quote, we've done everything we can do with regard to DNA, end quote. And he would not comment on whether any samples remain intact for future testing. Right.
0: So we can't assume either way. But if they have it, we've like we know now we're in the golden age and this could get solved.
1: Donna, this her sister, does not know whether any DNA from Barbie's attacker remains either. She does know, though, that her sister was a fighter and would almost certainly have harvested perpetrator DNA under her fingernails as she fought for her life.
0: I know that they did a toxicology report and they said that she had been drinking, but I wonder if they went any further. Because let's say there wasn't DNA underneath her fingernails. I mean, do we know that?
1: No, we don't know that. That's just speculation by her family.
0: And with her sister saying, look, my sister was a fighter. This also makes you wonder, was Barbie, you know, in a state where she could even fight back? Or was she so heavily intoxicated or or drugged by something where she couldn't fight back?
1: Right. And really the the simplest thing with all of these words that the coroner is saying really all that's providing to us the general public is that they have or had some form of dna they know that she was raped and they've they believe that she was dumped there within just a couple of hours of being found mm-hmm. so another intriguing tidbit that the coroner mentioned to the media this involved something found on Barbie's body. So the coroner found that she had something written on her hand, two lines of text written in pen. So during the autopsy, this is what Cox says we noticed that there was some kind of writing in the palm of her left hand. Some of it was legible and some was not. He stated that the first line contained numbers and the second line was words, possibly. Cox guessed it was an address. So what did the authorities in summit County do to try to interpret the writing, which the press immediately seized upon as a possible clue left by Barbie as to her killer's identity or identities mm-hmm. without her family's consent or even their knowledge they amputated her left hand and sent it to the FBI lab in Washington for analysis. Cox said that the lab had sophisticated laser and infrared technologies that might enable them to decipher the wording on Barbie's palm and that he should have the results in a few weeks. And that's the last the public heard of this writing on her palm, whether or not it was an actual clue or, well, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, it's
0: weird because, okay, we do know that she went to a bike shop that she went to often. Why would you write down that address? Right. This other party that she told her parents about, if she left the address when she called, I would then assume that that would be the address that you might find on her hand. But we could also assume that maybe she knew where that party was, too. Mm-hmm. And then she gets dropped off at her boyfriend's house or her, I mean, we're calling it her boyfriend, right? But she was kind of not one to have serious relationships. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You would assume that she knew the address.
1: Of course she does, yeah.
0: Right, so why would you write that down on your hand? So if, if it's not a phone number, which that would make sense to me as well, you're out at some parties, you run into some friends or old friends. Hey, here's my number. But, but the coroner is saying, I think it's an address numbers, words underneath. To me, you'd only write that down if you're going to a place that you didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, is this a sign? Okay. We don't have any, we don't have any information back. They, they sever her hand. They send it to the FBI. Why the family hasn't got some answers on this is absolutely ridiculous.
1: Well, even more so that they weren't asked for permission to do so, or, or at least even Mm -hmm. told about it.
0: Yes. Right. Right. I, maybe not asking for permission, um, but saying, Hey, this is what we're doing because this is how we think we can solve this. And this is what we discovered. That's appalling. Really? Um, that's like, you know, that's just very disrespectful to Barbie and her family.
1: Well, they likely they likely didn't get the information from it even during this testing that they were hoping to to get.
0: Right. But let's just assume that Cox is correct, right? That it was some kind of address. Then it almost implies that she knew she was going somewhere or possibly going to go somewhere after she gets dropped off at her boyfriend's house.
1: hmm. Yeah. Or, I mean, it could have been for any type of future use. We don't know that it had to have been for that night. And when I first read this statement, my mind jumped to a phone number. You know, I could see we've all done it, whether it be a piece of paper or on your hand, where you write down someone's name and a phone number. But the way that he says it, when he says that there were numbers on top and some type of words on the bottom... That to me, I'm, I'm going with Cox on this one because that's how I would typically write down an address, you know, the, the, the numeric and then the street name. So the other thing too, is we've not actually seen this and not many people have apparently the, including the family. So it's very likely that whether you're able to make it out or not, what, what was written There's a chance that he could have looked at this and said, well, there's only four or five numbers on top, not enough for an actual phone number. Again, this type of laser Mm -hmm. technology back then, we have discussed this on some of the other cases that we covered that were around the same time frame. Mm -hmm. It wasn't uncommon for them to bring in these this laser technology from the FBI to try to find fingerprints on a body or on certain items. So this is really just to try to paint a a better picture and fill in some of the blanks, because if there weren't blanks, they wouldn't have had to send it off to be tested. Well, and this
0: is also kind of the problem with having where she was found, not where we think the actual crime took place, but where she was found, investigate this crime. Because again, maybe you have some smeared letters or numbers or whatever, but maybe detectives within her home town would know what those meant. You know what I mean? Like they have a better chance of, you know, does that make any sense?
1: I I mean, I know what you're getting at, but I don't, I don't know. I do think that there is confusion in this case because they did follow protocol and, and, the investigative agency was where the body was found. Right, right. Which I I
0: understand is protocol. But again, it's to me, the protocol should be not only are we going to have where she was found investigate, but where she came from. We're going to have them involved. Because again, a name or a number might ring a bell to a local detective where it might mean nothing to somebody from Cuyahoga Falls, you know.
1: So when we covered the Tony Muncy case that took place in the eighties as well and in Ohio as well, there was a bit of a struggle for jurisdiction regarding that case. I don't know that there was necessarily a struggle for jurisdiction here, but just to give some people an example of such, in Tony Muncy's case, he lived in Columbus, Ohio. He was found in Delaware County and found within what was it, 24 hours or so after he was last seen.
0: Yeah, now a lot of people, just to clear this up, a lot of people are going, Tony Muncy, I don't know if I heard that episode, is one of our uh, bonus episodes. We only have two, uh, Tony Muncy and the Brick of Family Murders. You can find those on iTunes or on our website.
1: Yeah, and during that time, Columbus PD said, we want to take this case on because we believe he was he was killed likely in Columbus or by somebody that, that was in Columbus. Okay. Right. And Delaware County was like, no, we're going to take it because we found the body in Delaware County. What, what transpired there, in my opinion, I don't mean to criticize, but the leads that Delaware County was following, they weren't, they weren't equipped to handle that type of case back then. Mm -hmm. They are nowadays, but not back then. I think it would have been a different outcome had Columbus police department been the one to lead the investigation or I mean, well, I shouldn't say lead because they weren't really allowed to be involved very much at all.
0: Right. So what you're saying is not to offend, but hey, you guys are just little pieces of shit.
1: Well, I don't know the way that it went down in Barbie's in Barbie's case. I don't know that they were that there was a struggle for jurisdiction. What I'm getting at here
0: is but see what i'm saying my the new protocol not to cut you off sorry but
1: new protocol is everybody works together
0: that's the new protocol right
1: i mean it, they, they, somebody may still have the lead on right. a case but oftentimes Share the we see yeah often at least here in ohio what we've seen with our own eyes and a lot of times with the cases that we've covered elsewhere what we see is when we're reporting this stuff it's like we mentioned two or three or four agencies when we're talking about some of right. these cases So I don't know how much involvement Garfield Heights actually had in this situation, Mm -hmm. because we know that it was Summit County that had the case. And we know still to this day, the case remains unsolved and Summit County still has the case. Where I will give criticism goes back to the removal of the hand, because this is the way that this whole thing went down. And it's a bit shameful to me. The family discovered that Barbie's hand was severed and sent away, effectively mutilating the corpse, when a reporter called the Blatnick home. And the person that answered the phone was 19-year-old Donna, her sister. And she was simply asked by the reporter, why was your sister's hand, why had it been cut off? What I'm getting at is I'm not suggesting that they would have had to ask for permission, but I do think there are better ways to handle this situation when you have loved ones that are mourning the loss of their sister and their daughter, where you don't have to show any of your cards per se. You could simply say, look, this is one thing that we think will be extremely helpful to the investigation of the murder of your daughter. The hand contains, we believe that it could contain some evidence that could lead us to the perpetrator.
0: Right. And in order for us to do the best job we can as investigators, we're going to actually turn over this to the
1: FBI. Right. You don't have to tell them what you found. You don't have to. And in
0: doing so, we have to remove her hand. Right. And, you know, because. It'd be a very difficult thing for a parent because part of you would just be going, can't they just come here? Yeah. Can't they just come here? Do we have to, you know, put her through more than she's already been through. Right. And and I understand that she's passed away at this point, but that's what it feel like that you're putting her through more torture than is necessary.
1: So what is known about the investigation is, uh, besides what we've already talked about by Tuesday, December 23rd, Cuyahoga falls police had interviewed 15 or 20 people in connection with Barbie's death, including a number of her friends. But they said publicly that they had come up with nothing concrete and had no definite suspects in mind. What if any police uncovered in their investigation remains a mystery even to this day. When we inquired of the Cuyahoga Falls sergeant about certain aspects of the cage, such as whether police ever found her clothes or jewelry or whether they could tell us what the message was on her hand, we received basically a no comment, which is, which is fine. That's good.
0: Yeah, I hope what that means... Fine.
1: Well, it's fine. That's good. And I say that because I hope that this is a case that they're revisiting from time to time and they don't want to show any of those cards that we just talked about.
0: Right, but you could say something like that. And yeah, we're currently working on this. Uh, we don't want to compromise what we have. Um, but the fact that there's out there's people out there, like you said, armchair detectives, you got people in our family that are still pushing this forward. Now we're trying to push this forward. Sometimes these cops need to get off, uh, stop sitting on their hands, and put out more information. Uh, even if, because th- that's going to be my argument constantly. You see it like with the Amy Mahalova case, coming out with new evidence and having press conferences 20 years after the fact. You know, some of that stuff just doesn't make any sense. And if they have DNA, they need to be testing it.
1: Well, according to Barbie's family, the clothes and the jewelry were never found. And the police captain at the time, back in 1988, told the Beacon Journal that, quote, we have probably interviewed over 200 people about Barbie's last hours, her whereabouts, and the timeline. Ten years later, reflecting on the unsolved case in 1997, the lead Cuyahoga Falls detective on the case, Larry Wagner, theorized that it hadn't been solved because the crime was probably committed 30 miles away in Garfield Heights and police didn't have an easy time tracking down witnesses. Wagner said, quote, she was a fairly popular young lady so she had a lot of friends and a lot of people we had to look into. I'll bet we interviewed at least 100 people but he said they had very few solid leads to go on even chalking her murder up to a possible transient. And that's about it for public knowledge of the official investigation. Now, thanks to the Facebook page and Barbie's sister, Donna, again, we have a little more insight into some of the players whom police might have spoke to or looked at in this case. According to Michelle, Barbie did not hook up with Jerry, her boyfriend, that night, at least initially, right? We know that. Jerry wasn't around. She asked to be dropped off on Warner Road and that she was going to head to his house nearby. By local reports, Jerry wasn't home. He was out with his friends that night. We have no idea whether Barbie knocked on the door or just went away when no one answered what the situation could have been or... Here's a possibility. Or if Bob, Jerry's brother, or anyone else answered the door, if Barbie did approach the door and knock. Right.
0: Well, because we have to put it out there that it's a possibility that she tells her friends, hey, drop me off. by my boyfriend's house. And that could have been a meeting spot for her to meet somebody else. So we don't even know if she made it to her boyfriend's house.
1: Right, exactly. I mean there could be any number of reasons for her to change her mind and go elsewhere. Right. We do know that Jerry was looked at hard by police, but it's unknown whether they ever tested his DNA.
0: So he's not home that we know of. And
1: well, we we know according to statements that he was mm-hmm. out with friends that
0: night. Right, so he has an alibi. He's not at home and he has an alibi.
1: It seems like Jerry was looked at pretty good by police, but it is unknown whether they ever tested his DNA. Mm -hmm. We have been told that several of the guys in the neighborhood eager to exclude themselves from the suspect pool agreed to be tested, but we don't know for certain if Jerry was one of them. According to Donna, there were a few who refused but police seem to have satisfied themselves that Jerry was not involved. We're basing this off of the fact that he was never named a suspect or arrested. Uh, he has since passed away. Yeah, and-
0: so you got all these local creepos. Think about the shitty things that you had to do with your life where you, somebody comes up missing, a uh, dead body is found, and you're very eager to get yourself excluded from the investigation
1: well i don't know that that you necessarily know. means that they're creeps or that they've done anything wrong not I,
0: all of them but i'm saying out of of, one of them in that group is super duper creepo right and so he's going please test me because i've made a lot of bad decisions and i don't want people to think that i did this
1: i i don't know about- i'm just saying
0: there there's at least one and i'm just saying that guy made a lot of bad decisions
1: It's a possibility, but when they're talking to these individuals, look, if they believe that they have a blood type or or anything regarding DNA or that type of evidence that can either clear somebody or connect them, they're not going to make their jobs any harder than it has to be. They're going to ask you where you were that night. Do you know Barbara Blatnick? Mm -hmm. Uh, How long have you known her? Do you know any of her friends? Okay, who of them do you know? Would you be willing to submit your... DNA or your blood type or any of that evidence to us, and we can either include you or exclude
0: you. But I'm saying there might be somebody in the audience going with their hand raised, please test me. Hey, we're not even talking to you. No, I know you're not talking to me, but please test me. I want to be excluded from this investigation.
1: I think what's more interesting is the um, alibis that some of these teenagers and young adults may or may not have had for that night Mm -hmm. we have a lot of kids and young adults that are look i'm not going to accuse them of of anything that we don't already know these are people that are drinking underage smoking some pot hanging out partying not a big deal right that's pretty that's a fairly common activities for people of that age right so no big deal there, no harm, no foul. However, I think where a lot of the the trouble that this investigation has got into is going off of the word of these young adults and teenagers that are breaking some very small rules and laws. Right. I wonder how well we can trust the alibis and statements provided to detectives regarding what was going on that night with whom and where.
0: Right. So hypothetically speaking, you got a group of teenagers that were hanging out at the captain's pub and the captain's pub was serving minors alcohol that night.
1: My ties and margaritas.
0: Yeah. Loads of my ties and, and we got a special drink called the douche canoe. It's very long and it's filled with booze and it's kind of like a fishbowl. But anyways, there's a, so here's what I'm hearing you say is a teen, a teenage group might tell the cops we were at Tommy's house or we were just driving around and not to give the location of the place that they might've been drinking or partying at. Mm-hmm. And so that makes, did they do anything wrong? No. Are they involved in the crime? No, but it's making a lot of these stories unclear.
1: Yes. And, and I base that off of this. So let's, I'm going to create four different compartments real quick here regarding these teens and young adults, and especially the young adults that are still living at home with mom and dad. Okay. So we have the A group that may not give a shit about anything and they're just willing to tell the cops, whatever, because they don't care. They don't fear the cops. They don't fear their parents. They don't fear the law. Then we have another group who might be terrified of getting in trouble with the law, may not understand the law and think, oh, I sold some pot to these people. Right. I'm going to go away forever. Okay. And then you have another group, group C that might just be terrified of mom and dad. I don't want to get in trouble with mom and dad, or I don't want to disappoint my parents. Right. Then we got group D who is going to go, you know what? Maybe I'm a little afraid of the law. Maybe I'm, A little afraid of disappointing my parents, but in the sake of doing what's right, I'm going to accept what I've done and I'm going to tell the truth to the police anyway. But what I'm getting at is you still have two groups within that, that large pool of people. We know that she was a popular kid. She had a lot of friends, nobody, there's nobody out there saying differently. So you have a large group of people, all of them young adults and teenagers, and you have if we're going to break that up into just four different groups, we got two of those four groups that probably would bend the truth
0: well, right. or and leave
1: then, out details or, you know, the hey,
0: other group is the people that don't want to get the establishment that they're at in trouble.
1: Right. So, so no. And then on top of that, no, it also can affect your personal life going forward right, and your activities. Maybe you love going to the bike shop in December and January and getting all boozed up with your buddies. But guess what? After I tell the truth about what I was doing that night when Barbara went missing and then was found dead, mm-hmm. guess what? I can no longer say, Hey mom, dad, I'm going off to the bike shop. See you in a few hours. That ain't going to fly anymore.
0: Well, yeah. And all those rats that ratted out the captain's pub, no douche canoe for you. No douche canoe for you.
1: Well, in episode two of this case, Captain, I really want to take a deep dive into what are some other possibilities for that night, for Barbara's last night. And I also want to explore if her murder could be connected to other murders in the area.
0: A lot more to dive into. If you have thoughts on this, go to truecrimegarage.com and leave your comments on the blog.
1: Yep, join us back here for part two. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter.